today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. As you know, uh, protesters rallied outside Ontario Legislature during a rare midnight sitting last night. This in order to try to get the uh, bill passed in order to reduce the size of Toronto's legislature. Here's what Christine Elliott had to say about this, followed by the Premier. People have the right to protest, but we are the elected representatives of the people and we have a job to do as well. That's why we're here. And this is what Doug Ford had to say. The days of being gouged by the government, they're done because we believe in empowering the people, not empowering the government. We will make sure we put more money in your pocket instead of the government's pocket. I thank you, and again, a new day is dawned in Ontario. All right, let's bring in Barry Kay. Barry Kay, of course, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University and is with us now. Barry, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hello, Scott. What are your thoughts on what transpired over the weekend at the Ledge? Well, it's theater. Um, it's predictable. Uh, look, I'm not at all sympathetic to what uh, Ford is doing, and there's lots of people, including um, some conservatives, not from his caucus, but some conservatives feeling the same way. Um, I think, however, it's largely going to have minimal impact in the long run. The one thing that uh, may well occur is that uh, because we're getting down to the short strokes and the likelihood that of a, a functional election can actually occur on October 22nd as intended is becoming more and more questionable. It is possible that the date for the election may end up having to be postponed because there are certain requirements in terms of people having notice as to when they can um, they, they haven't even put together the uh, the election ballots yet because they don't know who's going to be on the ballot and the, the, the date hasn't actually hasn't even been certain so i think the the protesting that's going on will have possibly some effect in delaying it i'm not absolutely certain even of that but at the end of the day uh, the uh, because of the fact that the province constitutionally has all the authority it, it wants in with regard to municipal affairs as I think I mentioned on Bill's show last week, uh, they could abolish the city of Hamilton tomorrow if they wanted and have it join Niagara Falls or Toronto. Uh, at the end of the day, the, um, the province will out and that, in fact, the, a 25-seat Toronto City Council probably will occur. Um, that's not to say that there isn't room for democracy. That isn't to say that it that isn't useful for people to express themselves. But the way the Constitution is set up, unlike in the United States, where small little municipalities can stay forever unless they want to, um, uh, uh, unless they, they decide to, to put themselves out of existence, we find that in um, in Canada and in Ontario more specifically, the provincial government can do whatever it wants. So I'm not particularly optimistic that at the end of the day this is going to work. Should um, the province have gone to the um, notwithstanding clause? Absolutely not. That was never the intent. It was supposed to be for important matters, not frankly trivial matters. But um, all the protesting, people may feel good. They felt they were part of the process. It isn't going to ultimately change the final outcome. Uh, a surprise that due to the plowing match that we had a late night sitting. Well, that's something else. That's just a coincidence of an event that traditionally politicians go to. Perhaps this would be the year to, to end the tradition, but um, the gesture that, uh, what is it, Wednesday, they have to be away. The actual legislation, because this was, last night was second reading, there still has to be one more reading, and right. unless you've got unanimous consent, which they're certainly not going to have, um, it delays the things a little bit. It suggested that by the end of the week, we probably will have the legislation in place at that time. Uh, the city council, and goodness knows, the clerk of the city council, or the people that are doing the uh, the work, have have headache after headache to deal with. It's quite possible that a number of people who had intended to to, uh, to run for office will not be able to. It's also quite possible. I think one of the outcomes of this 
screw up is that um, people, the incumbents who are much better known, people with name recognition, are going to be much, they, they normally have an advantage anyways in mm-hmm. municipal politics. But in this case, even more so because new people are not going to have much time to, to get going. Look, I think it's been about seven weeks, if I remember correctly, since the, um, the government made the announcement. It was just the end of July. We're now into uh, past mid-September. Uh, but the legislation still hasn't been put into place. Uh, we have, we're going to have four ways. It's, it's going to be a screw-up in an election. It's going to be a mess in terms of people being aware and informed of what's going on. But the province wants to do it. So this is what, for, again, more than ever, he just seems to be channeling Donald Trump in terms of the style of which he does things and his sense of self-importance politically. In the long run, I'm hoping that, in fact, people will remember it's going to be a long time till the next provincial election and that perhaps this will be a sign of things to come and that, that perhaps people will be upset with uh, Doug Ford's approach to things. However, on this specific matter, unfortunately, I think we're going to have a 25-person city council. Uh, a lot of political capital to spend so early in your tenure on something like this. Yeah, on, uh, on really uh, a trivial matter. I mean, ultimately, it's about... 22 people having a job on city council. Uh, it'll per, um, you're, you're still going to have the, the people may need more staffers now per person because they're going to be representing large number larger numbers of people. Uh, the notion that it's a representative democracy is, is, is silly, but again, this is the language that uh, that Ford's using. Yeah, as again, I think a line I used on Bill's show last week was he's uh, he's using a, a blowtorch to kill a fly in terms of the the. The constitutional use of a procedure for what's actually involved. However, at the end of the day, I'm afraid he is going to prevail, although it may affect the actual date of the, the city election itself. Do you, how long, how do you think the logistics of that election will go? Will they end up delaying this, say, a month or two I, months? I, I'm not certain. Um, I mean, again, there are, I, I don't know that it will even be a month. Um, I, guess, I think he will try to create legislation to make it seem that everything is as normal as, as he possibly can. Just physically, I don't know how long it takes to print ballots, because indeed the legislation isn't in place yet, so the notion of the, the, date, the deadline for being a candidate can't, can't be officially established quite yet. I think it will be on a very short notice. Um, you've got candidates who don't, will not know what their, the boundaries were of the constituency. Undoubtedly, you're going to have incumbents running against each other. It isn't the way an election. Uh, I mean, if if in fact this had been done back in July in such a way, if he if for I, I, more than anything, I think Ford was doing this just to be vindictive because he was unhappy with the way he was treated when he was on city council in the past, along with his with his brother, and he just kind of wanted to stick his middle finger at the uh, at the people. If in fact he was truly concerned about the size of the city council, he's not doing this for any other municipality. Um, he could very well have have established it for the the next. Um, municipal election, which would take place, I guess, in um, in four years' time, he didn't want to do it that way. Uh, I, I I can't speak. I'm not the one to speak to about how many days is required to print ballots. How many days is reasonable for candidates to have notice with regard to uh, nominating themselves for office? Uh, so I can't speak to that. Um, the the reason I mentioned timing at all is that if there's any change at all, that's all there will be. I don't think the um, the 47 person council is going to be uh, is going to be retained. Um, again, for Ford, it's just a matter of optics. He wants to show that he's strong and that he can do it. And even if he's using a blowtorch procedure in order to, to pursue it, that's more important than anything. Look, for the people of Ontario, I think the concern is that what is this telling us about the way he's going to govern for the next four years? 
uh, because it looks like the uh, the uh, you know the provincial caucus is very much in line and just going to follow along with whatever he says at the moment. That seems to be the case. There are some conservatives who've spoken out against it, but nobody within the caucus itself. How is this resonating, Barry? How do you think this is resonating in the rest of Ontario? Does the rest do? Do Ontarians care about this? I, I'm not sure. My hunch is no. I think when, in fact, this kind of procedure or this kind of style, I'm not sure notwithstanding clause is the issue so much. Uh, I'm not sure that people in uh, Kenora or Goderich or goodness knows where else are going to feel particularly uh, involved themselves in what the uh, the number of people on Toronto City Council are. I'm not sure most Torontonians are all that concerned. The style with which it's being done is truly offensive, and that, that may resonate at some point, particularly if this is going to be, be picked up and this is going to be followed in other matters. There are ways, look, in our system, we have, um, we have party discipline in the legislature. That's not new. And when you have a majority government, as we frequently do, the government of the day can do what it wants, more or less. However, there are procedures to follow. There are rules, and there are times that, in fact, the rules can be used to delay things and to at least bring attention to controversial matters. Uh, and it looks like Ford is doing everything he can to blow right through even that. With majority governments, he's not the first government to be able to do things that might be unpopular, but at least in the past, relatively speaking, there would be opportunity for debate and discussion. Uh, what he is trying to do with the notwithstanding clause is to minimize that as much as he can. We were talking about you know expending this much political capital so early. Uh, what is the political gain for Doug Ford on this? Oh, I'm not sure there's much of a political gain. Uh, I think it's just that he's just, other than he wants to show he's strong and can get things done, even things that are unpopular and creating kind of a, uh, a backlash. Uh, I guess there was sort of this, in the populist mode of uh, our neighbor to the south, he's trying to... Um, suggest that indeed he doesn't listen to political elites and clearly political elites are opposed to him um, I think it's more to, to indicate for the issue to me isn't even all that important my hunch is that whether the city council tilts left or right or somewhere in between that indeed the, the, the voting patterns are not going to be significantly different uh, you're going to have people in the downtown area being probably to the left. You're going to have people in the more more uh, remote suburbs to the right and people in sort of the uh, the outer parts of the old city that are going to be in the middle, suggesting that in terms of city council decisions, they're going to end up somewhere in between. I guess political debates will be shorter because there's going to be fewer people on council and maybe meetings won't run as long, but I'm not sure that's going to affect. It's not like they're they're meeting every day anyway. Um, I, I don't think it's going to have the uh, actual, in terms of the kinds of decisions city council will be making, um, I don't think are going to be fundamentally all that, um, all that different as a result of, of this. But I think. What about for, the cost savings, he says, over the. Yeah, over... That's, that really is peanuts mm-hmm. uh, in terms of you know, the salaries of the 22 people in the greater scheme of things is, is peanuts. The, the staffers, I think, are going to be largely the same. Uh, I, I don't want to suggest there's no, no difference, but it, it's infinitesimal in terms of the amount of money that the, the Toronto City Council would have. And clearly, he, um, he's not doing this in any other uh, municipality other than Toronto. If that was what he was really all about, if it was, you know, again, it's something he didn't talk about in the election. Uh, I, I don't really think that's what it's about. I just think that he is somebody who is not to be to be tampered with, quote-unquote, in, in his mind, and he's just laying down a marker, and he wants people to know that he's bloody-minded about these things, and he's going to push it through regardless. And that, that, and that it, it, more frankly, the future implications, I think, are even more serious than the fact that there's going to be 22 fewer members of city council. Uh, how do you think we will look back at this? Uh, how do you think we will look back at his use of the notwithstanding clause? Oh, I think in terms of the people that write history and the people that are elites, I think there already is, is a fear about it. 
you know, it, you know, sometimes we look at the, the notion, uh, you know, in the states, the use of the filibuster sometimes in the Senate. It was for many years a rarely used procedure, only in extreme circumstances. But in the last uh, 10, 15 years, it's become very everyday and, and very, um, very ordinary. And it basically has led to, uh, to dysfunction and led to, in the case of the U.S., it's basically led to stalemate. Now, the, the, uh, the, the notion of the notwithstanding clause is not, does not lead for, to stalemate. It leads, frankly, to, um, to ending kind of debate and discussion. My fear is that it's going to make it much more, nor it's going to normalize the use of the notwithstanding clause. And it may, if this gets picked up elsewhere, Ontario, again, it's the first time it's been used in Ontario. Quebec uses it in the past over language issues, a few other provinces, right. and also the Yukon, I think, used it once over relatively um, obscure procedures. It hasn't been used much, though, outside of Quebec. My fear is that it might become normalized, that this is something you can do any old time. And that if that's the case, I'm hoping that, in fact, at some point it's so damn hard for the uh, Constitution to be fiddled with in our, in our world because in Canada, once they start playing with the Constitution, every province has its own demands before they're going to agree to anything to change. My fear, however, is that, in fact, may undo the value of, it, of having a notwithstanding clause at all. And if other pro- I, I, by itself, I don't think that's going to happen. But if other provinces decide, hey, or uh, other provincial premiers say it's a way to, to push things through that are otherwise um, viewed as unconstitutional by the courts, it may very well lead to the fact that there becomes a backlash against the notwithstanding procedure. We're not there yet. I'm not suggesting it's going to happen. That would certainly be, if, if this kind of thing becomes commonplace, as Ford would seem to like to use it. That's possibly something that might happen in the, down the road. Uh, they said, the PCs said that this decision would be appealed either way. Uh, they're obviously doing this now to ram it through. Uh, does it change if they win the appeal on this? Um, to go back to, well, I guess, my first answer a few minutes ago, at the end of the day, I think you're going to have a council of 25 people. Mm-hmm. Could it be delayed because of court procedures? Yes. Um, I'm not sure of that yet either, because I'm not sure whether, in fact, it's even practicable, even if, if they are get, able to get the legislation through by, let's say, Friday, whether or not it's possible physically, given the requirements that are involved, for the election to take place on October 22nd. And for that reason, maybe it will get pushed back a few weeks into November, or goodness knows when. But I don't think at the end of the day that there's going to be the 47-person council that was originally intended. Uh, will Ontarians feel he is spending too much focus on, too much time and, and, and focus on Toronto? Oh, well, on this particular matter, some do already. I don't think there was a bit. Look, this is not something he campaigned upon or even, even mentioned. I think this is just sort of petty vindictiveness because of the fact that he wanted to stick it to people who, had, who weren't nice with him or his brother when he was on Toronto City Council to show that he could do it. Um, there, he's not going to be up for election again for another four years. He's got a, uh, a by-election proof majority. If, if he was only ahead by two or three seats, by-elections might open up and occur that could allow his majority to be jeopardized. That's not going to be the case. He has a very comfortable majority that even if they lose a few by-elections along the way, it, it doesn't matter. My hunch is that the size of Toronto City Council will not be a defining election in um, in 2022, I guess, would be the next election. I don't think people are going to be voting for that reason. Mm-hmm. There are people that are unhappy. I'll tell you what it could have a, ha- a pattern of. Um, the, uh, the city council, John Tory, in fact, went to the, the, uh, the federal government hoping that they could intervene, right. which theoretically they probably could, could try to do. Um, but uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't want to have any part of that. He doesn't want to make this issue a federal election issue. If Ford's behavior, not just on this, because I think this issue will kind of go away. The number of people on Toronto City Council is just not that overwhelming of overwhelming salience to most people. 
But if, in fact, this becomes the style of Ford's operation, and if he and Trudeau start fighting about a lot of other things, and we already see that on the carbon tax that's coming as well, um, I think it's quite possible that if, if, in fact, Doug Ford is unpopular a year from now, not just because of this issue, but because of his style, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau may very well try to tie Ford to Tashir and the federal conservatives, and that you may find that the federal conservatives who actually have just uh, you know, gotten ahead of the, there was very close to polling up until the last couple of weeks, uh, that and now yeah, I've seen a seven or eight point lead for the, the liberals federally. I could imagine the federal liberals um, basically demonizing Ford provincially, at least in the province of Ontario, and that having an impact on next year's federal election. Uh, can you see this as a preliminary battle for what's coming up with the, with the carbon tax? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 it's, that, that's the thing. The, the, the size of council isn't that important an issue for most people. It doesn't, it's not going to affect people's lives. I'm not even sure it's going to affect Toronto City Council decisions much. It'll affect the 22 people that don't have seats, mm-hmm. and it may shorten debates a little bit. Um, but that, in fact, if this is the style that Ford wants to show how tough he is and have fights with everybody, as we're seeing with our neighbor to the south, uh, yes, the carbon tax is coming, and there will undoubtedly be other issues. Ontario is um, not quite 40%, but it's a very significant part of the, of, of the, of the country. Um, and indeed, I think that you are, this is sort of the predicate for ongoing fights between the provincial conservatives and the federal liberals. And as I say, this might very well be playing out on other issues, not necessarily this issue, but the style of governing that may very well be relevant um, in a, a year from now when we're just on the, on the, the verge of a, a federal election. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if, in fact, um, Trudeau makes regular reference and does his best to tie Doug Ford to um, to Andrew Scheer, who will be the conservative leader at Mm. that time. Um, How will the opposition play this? I mean, if this runs out of gas in the next few days, how do do they position this? Oh, it's an outrage to democracy. I mean, that's the kind of thing oppositions do. Oppositions can raise attention and uh, cause debate about issues. In, major- in minority government times, things are different. In minority government times, the opposition can do a lot, but that's certainly not the case now. And they will, uh, they will continue to huff and puff and, and try to use theater, and which is kind of what they did with the demonstration that led to them being uh, thrown out of the, uh, the legislature uh, last week. They will do that, um, and they, they want to make everyone aware of the fact that they, they're for democracy, they're for representing the people, and try to portray the conservatives as, as not doing it. Um, the, the, in our society, the, or in our political system, oppositions don't score many points politically by saying me too for the, um, to the government. They're always going to be in disagreement. They're in certainly more vociferous disagreement on this matter than usual, and they're certainly using tactics that are, um, are, are perhaps much more extreme. But uh, the fact that the opposition is opposed to government policies is just the nature of our political system. Um, uh, and they're doing their best, uh, you know, under um, Andrew Horvath, they're doing their, their best on that particular issue. But there will be other issues and other controversies that, and that are probably of much more relevance even six months from now and certainly four years from now. I uh, can't let you go without getting a quick comment from you, Barry, in regard to south of the border. Uh, on Friday, Manafort announcing that uh, he'll, he'll uh, cooperate with the Mueller investigation. What can he have that could damage Trump? Not sure exactly. Again, Trump doesn't even know what, uh, what, what, uh, for, uh, what Manafort has. Look, the walls are closing in. It's not just um, Manafort as important as he is, uh, but it's all these other people. Uh, Pecker, who is ahead of the, uh, the uh, National Enquirer. It's the, the, uh, the money guy, um, Weissel, Weisselberg, I think is his name. Uh, Alan Weisselberg. Uh, there's just all sorts of signs that things are looking grim. Look, the next 
two years if he lasts that long, and he may well. I'm not at all certain that Trump will leave office before the end of his term, but I do think it quite likely he'll be impeached after I expect the conservatives, excuse me, the um, got my country's mixed up now, that the as long as is, is, is so long as the Democrats win the House of Representatives, I expect them to do. We'll perhaps talk a little bit closer to November 6th. November 6th is the date where I think it's going to become much more inevitable. We're, we're past the point now where Trump can even seriously talk about trying to end the, the Mueller inquiry. Uh, because, in fact, if he tried to do it, it would only make matters worse. In fact, the Democrats in Congress would renew the inquiry, just as when Richard Nixon uh, fired the original prosecutor back in the 70s with Watergate um, uh, and, and had him replaced uh, with, uh, you know, by, by somebody else. It, um, it, it's too late. for tr- Now, we don't know all the, all the dirt there is on Trump, but he does know. And he's acting as guilty as hell. And in fact, yeah. I think you're going to see, for those that might remember with fondness the Watergate process of slowly, little by little, uh, Richard Nixon's presidency and administration unraveling. That's what's going to happen, I think, in much greater detail. The polls are already more negative than they've been. I'm expecting a big win for the Democrats, at least in the House. Maybe not the Senate will be close. But it's, again, because of this unusual map that the, most of the seats that are up in the Senate are Democratic, not Republican, and that may not change. But I'm expecting that we're moving toward impeachment, there'll be a, but there'll be a lot of shoes to drop along the way. So that's going to get really interesting. Um, and I, this, uh, the, the Manafort uh, flipping is not good news, but um, there's a lot of shoes that will drop in terms of evidence. To, to come out in terms that I think is going to be very embarrassing. And I say that not because I know what it is. I don't. I say that because, in fact, Trump has acted so guilty and is so constrained by all these, these things happening around him. He does know. Well, he doesn't always remember everything yep. he does, but he does know what's going on. He, know, he knows the, you know, where, where the bodies are buried. And at some point, Mueller will know most of that as well, from Manafort, from Cohen, from other, many of these other people that are now cooperating with Mueller. Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Bye-bye now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. On Friday, Paul Manafort struck a deal to cooperate with the Mueller investigation. Uh, We talked a little bit about this, uh, of course, uh, uh, before the weekend. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort has pled guilty to the lesser charges of conspiracy in exchange to cooperation with special counsel Robert Mueller. Uh, Here's what ABC had to say about all of this. The only thing we really know is that um, Manafort has provided some kind of useful information to Mueller. Um, Prosecutors don't hand out plea deals without knowing that they're going to get something. So he's provided something of value. But other than that, you know, we really don't know. We can imagine, though, um, you know, Manafort was present at the now infamous June 2016 Trump Tower meeting. So he should be able to provide information to the special counsel about that. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy, Syndica- uh, Troy Syndicated, Troy Media Syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So uh, we don't really know what sort of information Manafort can supply to uh, the Mueller investigation. Do we Correct. have Do we have any reason to believe that it's anything related? to what Manafort has been investigated. It could be something completely different, could it not? Well, that's just it. It may be. I mean, the indication that's been said both publicly and privately for several months is that if Paul Manafort was ever found guilty, that he ultimately would be found guilty for charges related to things and activities that happened before he worked with President Trump, or that, in that case, candidate Donald Trump, and before Mr. Trump ever got in the White House. 
And in the end, ultimately, the charges that he was found guilty on all relate to financial irregularities that occurred in his private business. And as we know, yes, he obviously had businesses abroad in different countries, including Russia and the Ukraine. But the things that he's basically attested to or has been found guilty of that he, yes, will be cooperating with the Mueller Commission on, all currently seem to relate to that. If there is anything else going on, or if it is related to the, the so-called Russia meddling that's been involved in the Trump White House since, well, since the very beginning of, um, I, I guess since, what, early 2016 we've been talking about this, so over two years, um, there's no indication presently that there's a connection between the two. But could they be juxtaposed? Yes. So, in other words, uh, I've got, you know, you may be arresting me on this, but I've got something totally unrelated that you may Im- be interested in on something else. Yeah, look, I mean, I wish I could be a little bit more thorough and a little bit more no. thoughtful in the link, but there's nobody, and including people who spend far more time than I do about this, talking about this each week, that could directly relate it. I mean, obviously, anyone who's a critic of the president will say that, yes, there is a connection there that basically Manafort might have been given a heavier sentence in theory, but clearly he has something on him, so they're just going to link everything together. Then there are others who suggest that, well, you know, Mr. Mueller has not really presented a proper, uh, shall we say, breadcrumb trail from point A to point Z when it comes to this issue. Ergo, is it simply just that Manafort got caught on a number of different things and is related to the Trump White House as he helped with Donald Trump's presidential campaign, although he never went to the White House per se, and obviously knows some of the players and others who were involved in various things, be it nefarious or be it simplistic. Ergo, maybe they're hoping to mine some information from Manafort to see if he can help connect some dots and take them forward. That was my next point, and used a great uh, term there, mine information from him. So in other words, uh, perhaps this is less about Manafort, but Manafort could say, but if I were you, I'd go look over there. Yeah, and that could potentially be it. Now, obviously, Manafort has said that he will completely cooperate with the Mueller Commission. We don't know to what extent he will, co- he will cooperate. We don't know what information he may or may not have. We don't even know what they're planning to talk about. I mean, it could all potentially be related to this, and they may try to see or find out, due to Mr. Manafort's connections as a political consultant in countries which have been sort of involved in this whole issue of Russia meddling, whether they can connect the dots and tie something together. Ultimately, there may be nothing there. And the indication, at least publicly, as of late last week, when it was clear that he was going to be found guilty, was that he doesn't have anything, and no matter what they ask him, and they can ask him whatever he want, whatever they want, he's not going to be able to form that sort of a connection. So it may just simply be that he was found guilty on separate charges. As I said before, they're going to try to mine some information from him, and if they find nothing, well, then they've reached another dead end. That being said, would if they didn't have anything, would they would they be offering to talk to him? Would they be offering to to help him in any way? Well, if he I mean, didn't look, have anything, theori- yeah, theoretically, you're right. It, it would it would seem kind of preposterous to make a plea deal with someone when they have absolutely nothing to give you. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it just may be that he has very light information. In other words, nothing that directly cor- uh, connects President Trump to anything. But may, he may be able to reveal something that he knows about other people who were involved in the campaign team or in the presidential administration 
who the general public and the media and various others are not talking about or are not focusing on on a regular basis. If that's the sort of thing he can give away, sure, you know, it doesn't get the end result that all of Trump's critics want, but it would allow the Mueller Commission to continue to defend its mission of moving forward in this investigation and claim that Manafort has at least provided them some insights that would be helpful for the future, and they need to continue on searching, looking, and you know, checking under every rock, window, tree, etc., to see if they can find anything to kind of justify the overall reason why this, this committee was built in the first place, or this commission was built in the first place. So would they be still talking to Manafort? Would, would they already have this information? What's that process? That's a good question. I would imagine they've talked to him to some degree, but because he's actually said that he will fully comply with the Mueller Commission, I would imagine that now that everything has been settled and he has a guilty verdict out, my guess is that he will probably sit down with them for longer periods of time in more intense conversations and reveal other things or discuss other things. I mean, there may have been things that have been talked about or discussed in a light fashion during their initial interviews with him, and they've met him at least once or twice that I know of, but there could have been smaller meetings as well that either were not disclosed or no one's really concentrated that much on. And from there, they might be able to build into bigger conversations. But again, a lot of this is speculation, not just on my part, but everyone's, because we really don't know what Manafort has, if anything, and we really don't know what he can reveal, if anything, or if he even wants to reveal anything. So So we don't really know where some of this is going. So he's he's entered a guilty plea. Uh, Obviously, they will verify any information before sentencing, will they not? to see how important it is. Well, yes. I mean, they have to verify information. They have no choice of that. Um, If they don't, it actually will make any decision to speak with Paul Manafort, well, quite frankly, irrelevant. You need to have at least something to chew on. You need something that's important enough to justify, one, speaking with him in the first place, two, making this agreement or arrangement for him to fully comply with them in the first place, and three, you're absolutely right, if they can't connect all the dots or they can't find all the footsteps or the, you know, the trail behind them in the sand has all been covered up, then there's nothing there, and what was the point of all this? However, we have to be fair about it. Although Paul Manafort is obviously a very loyal Republican and has been a loyal member, you know, not only just a loyal Republican, has worked on many different um, uh, Republican campaigns in the past from Ronald Reagan on, this is a man who certainly knows his way around, you know, the GOP wheelhouse. At the same time, we specifically don't know in this one instance if there's anything there, unfortunately, other than his own foolish decisions and dealings that he did personally, you know, as a, with the Trump White House and with the Trump campaign team. That's the whole key to this, and we just don't know at this stage. Is this less about the election and more about Trump's uh, personal business dealings, do you think? I, I, I think that's what probably Robert Mueller wants it to be. I think he has been trying since day one, it's just a guess on my part, to connect the Trump administration, or sorry, to connect Trump Incorporated, which includes the Trump Tower and other businesses that he has, to see if he can find that direct connection to Russia, whereas people have said it may exist or it may be indirect or it may not exist at all. They're just not sure how far this goes. And until we actually know what Paul Manafort knows or what Paul Manafort is willing to reveal, it may be simply that all he has in terms of knowledge is speculation. 
that because foreign affairs minister or foreign or or Soviet or Russian representative A B came over to a meeting at the Trump Tower, ergo we can connect this to what you're looking at in episodes C D and E. That's the only thing I can sort of find as a tie because Paul Manafort wasn't with the Trump campaign long enough to have seen a lot of these things. So the only thing he can provide, I believe, is background information or knowledge related to, one, what he knows as a Republican uh, consultant for many years, or a Republican political consultant, and B, what he may have seen during his short period of time with the Trump campaign team and where and the, the people that they met, the meetings that were held, the locations, etc. And maybe that'll give Mueller some insight. Or maybe this is nothing. This could be a wild goose chase for all we know. How is the White House viewing this, do you think, uh, that being uh, Manafort uh, cooperating? I don't think they're happy. I don't think they'd be happy with any sort of cooperation, Scott. I mean, obviously for them, this is a, a frustrating situation to be in, and plus they, they're probably not going to be involved in anything, and we'll only hear this information second or third hand, like you and I will. So it's going to be very hard for them to sort of combat it. All they can do is put up a brave face, as they do every night on TV, with, say, Rudy Giuliani coming out and trying to defend President Trump as often as he can on Fox News, CNN, and others. And they basically have to keep a positive outlook, saying that Manafort was not there for very long, that he, that in Trump's words, he was, quote-unquote, you know, it's not direct, but was screwed to some extent in terms of the way things happened to him, that he got a fate he didn't deserve, that he's being pushed into a situation to discuss things that he doesn't know. This is the only thing they can do. You have to care, keep an air of confusion about it, or else none of this makes sense. Because if they ever drop that facade or create a negative outlook or look like, appear that, like they're worried about what could potentially happen, God knows exactly where they would go from here. All right, I can't let you go, Michael, without getting your take on what happened over the weekend in the Ontario legislature and the Doug Ford uh, uh, Conservatives using the notwithstanding clause. Yeah. Seems to be a lot of people upset about this. Yeah, no, there are definitely. I agree with you. Look, the problem is, and I I have to admit it, I would have preferred that he didn't use that clause because of the history associated with it. The notwithstanding clause has primarily been used in in Quebec, you know, for language laws. And that's the big problem with it. The the big problem with it is, um, the the big problem with the notwithstanding clause, unfortunately, is that, uh, you know, it's been used for all the reasons that English Canada would prefer it didn't, to cause divisiveness and division in general that really we could all sort of live without the big problem here as well is that um, with this coming through even if you believe that city council should be reduced from forty seven to twenty five seats which i do even if you believe that the less politicians the better for our society which i do even if you agree with the savings of twenty five million dollars over four years which i do as well it's all getting kind of crushed by the use of something that really has just been, I believe, you know, a bad thing in Canadian politics. And it's one of the reasons why many governments in the past, including all federal governments and most provincial governments, have stayed away from the notwithstanding clause. But on the other hand, based on the fact that really that Doug Ford has been pushed into a situation where it's very difficult for him to fight back, where he's looking at huge amounts of lawsuits happening to him and coming from all ways, shapes, or form, 
you know, from that to disgruntlement over the sex ed curriculum to the case over the carbon tax that he's currently facing with Greenpeace and eco-justice, he had to put it out there basically to either stop the nonsense in his view, move forward with the legislation and ideas that he was democratically elected to serve, or put it out as a threat to say that if you keep doing this to me over and over again, well, guess what? I'm going to use the notwithstanding clause if I have to, which is a bad precedent to set. But on the other hand, if after two months this is what we're sort of seeing, which is just judicial roadblocks and other problems on a regular basis, that's for the first two months. Imagine what the next three years and ten months are going to look like. Uh, we're just getting this breaking news that a Liberal MP has crossed the floor to join the Conservatives. Are you getting wind of this? An Ontario MP crossed the floor of the nope. House of Commons, leaving the Liberals to join the Conservatives. Leona Azalev uh, has made oh. the stunning announcement as the MPs have returned to Ottawa following their summer break. Mm-hmm. We're watching her live now cross the floor. What Very interesting. Uh, no, I know the name, but no, I, I'm surprised. I certainly have not caught any wind of this, but... That's interesting. So one, you're now up to a 14-seat majority, so I've got to start changing my tune. And two, it also shows that, you know what, even in the small, teeny-weeny liberal benches, which were seven, now six, and they're getting, it looks like they're getting even smaller, um, people are starting to realize that, you know, whether you like the way Doug Ford handles things or the way Doug Ford governs, Doug Ford is effective, he's getting things done, and he's clearly getting legislation done that appeals to a lot of Ontarians. I should correct you there. I I should correct you there. It's a a liberal MP. It's not an MPP. Oh, Andrew Scheer. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Member of Parliament. Sorry. Well, well, again, okay, let me rephrase. And basically, in that case, it shows that Andrew Scheer, who is basically caught up a lot in terms of popular support, you know, it's now basically margin of error between him and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, which is about plus or minus 3%. It shows that obviously some liberals believe that Andrew Scheer's vision for the country may be better, wiser, and more effective overall than it is for just, than having Justin Trudeau as Prime Minister. Mm. And it shows that not everybody believes necessarily there are sunny ways in Ottawa. Does that, what does that do to a party when someone crosses the floor? Well, it, it, it's bad news. It's obviously something that the, especially now because it's a rare one where the government actually watches, witnesses happens. They've got to obviously defend it as much as they possibly can. They have to probably spin something out that this was a disgruntled, you know, backbencher, that she was frustrated that she didn't have a bigger voice or a bigger role, or that she's, you know, looking out for her own self-interest, not her constituents. They have to just basically spin, spin, spin as much as they can to make this story go away. It's not going to be earth-shattering. It's not going to stay in play for more than a couple days. But it's something that Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives, and quite frankly, even the other opposition parties who are not directly affected, which includes the, you know, the NDP, the Greens, and the Bloc, will use to show that not everybody is necessarily happy with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Not everyone necessarily trusts his leadership. Not everyone thinks that he is this great progressive visionist that some have made him out to be. And it's just another little blow that Trudeau and his mandarins, Jerry Butts, Katie Telford, and others will have to deal with. 
Uh, Leona Al- uh, Alislev, uh, across the floor, Liberal MP, representing the riding of Aurora, Oak Ridge, Richmond Hill, rose, at question, uh, pri- uh, to, uh, rose on a question of privilege at 135 on Monday, announced she had taken the oath to serve the country while serving as a member of the Air Force and that she no longer felt she could do that in the Liberal Party. Quote, uh, my oath is to my country, not my party. Uh, I do not accept the status quo. Our country is at stake. And then that's all we have so far. Interesting. Most interesting. I agree. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The MPs, uh, members of parliament back in Ottawa today, the opposition parties are preparing to clash with the liberal government today on hot button issues like uh, progression of NAFTA, pipelines and such. They're agreeing on trans-Pacific trade deals, but not on everything. Here's what uh, House Leader, Conservative House Leader Candace Bergen had to say. His record speaks for itself. Rather than strengthening the middle class, as he's promised, Canadians are paying more taxes while the wealthiest pay less. Instead of small and temporary deficits that he campaigned on, government spending is absolutely out of control. There is no balanced budget in sight till 2045 if we're lucky. All right, let's bring in Christo Avali, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Christo, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get uh, into this, uh, it appears that uh, an MP has crossed the floor just as they return to the fall setting, uh, fall session rather, and crossed the floor from the Liberals to the Conservatives. Your thoughts on this? I mean, it's certainly interesting. I mean, uh, Leona Alislev, I think I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Uh, she was a Liberal, uh, one of the one of the new MPs elected in 2015. She won a seat that was a fairly big Conservative win. In 2011, she won it very narrowly. Um, she has a background in the military. She was a graduate of the Royal Military College. I don't know too much about her, frankly, but it seems like she was a, a happy as a liberal a few weeks ago, but uh, you know, stood up kind of dramatically in Parliament today, uh, announced that she was crossing the floor, and then did so, um, basically saying that Trudeau has kind of failed to keep his promises to Canadians and that she doesn't have confidence anymore, and she feels the Conservatives are the best way forward now. Whether that's sincere or not, or whether, you know, she's doing kind of internal calculations about, well, you know, I had a narrow win, you know, during kind of a liberal tide in 2015, and maybe my best odds personally are to become a conservative. And if she just does even a little bit better, even in another liberal win, I might be one of the seats they can flip back to the conservatives, and I can guarantee myself a little bit more time in the House. Who knows? But but that is kind of the the, the biggest news today on the first day of of the new parliament. What does this do to a party when something like this happens? How is it, how is it, uh, how, do, how is this received? Well, you know, in, in a technical sense, it, you know, it, context matters. For instance, if it's a smaller party, then obviously a floor crossing, either plus or neg- or a plus or minus matters more. In a, in a minority situation, you know, it matters more, obviously. In this particular case, you know, Trudeau has a healthy majority, and this is just one one less seat in that majority, it doesn't change that balance. So the kind of raw technical nature of the government doesn't change. And, you know, Alice wasn't a particularly influential member of the caucus, so that doesn't matter necessarily as well. But, but it will cause some, some, it should lead to some, some, some extra thinking from the government because they have to look at, you know, who was she, what does she represent in terms of her demographics, what was her riding like, and I think this could create some some need to think from Trudeau and his team about 
about kind of suburban, or like you know, suburban areas and trying to reach those areas because that was uh, Alicev's kind of uh, you know writing that fits that demographic, and that is a traditional kind of liberal conservative battleground. You know, the uh, kind of outer skirts areas of southern Ontario that often determine who win elections. That's how Harper won in 2011. And in large part, that's one of the reasons Trudeau maybe didn't win the election in 2015, but certainly got his majority. So that could cause um, some need to, to think about how you reach to those, how you reach out to those communities. Would this have caught the prime minister off guard? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, one wonders if they found out that maybe this, it wouldn't have been allowed to end up in parliament. I don't know if, Maybe they found out you, you 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 can't you can't quit. We fired you. I mean, I don't know. Right. I don't know. It certainly seems to me like this was kept under wraps. Uh, she announced it in Parliament, and you know, often a lot of these things, whether it's you know a sports trade or whether it's a political development, you often do hear rumbles from a lot of the political insiders mm-hmm. from from Global or CTV or the CBC who who, who you know have their pulse on the on, on Parliament or on Queens Park. And then you kind of get it confirmed as it happens. And I didn't hear anything about this, frankly. So this might have been, you know, maybe relatively, you know, close, uh, close held secret, maybe with maybe not even with the entire conservative caucus, but maybe with, uh, you know, Sheer and his, 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 his core leadership team. That's that that could be um, that could be it could have been a you know very, very small group of people who knew this was happening. Does this do anything for morale within the party? Does it show trends? Does it, or is it just one of those things that happens in politics? You know, what about the timing? I mean, the timing certainly, the timing was maximized to generate a kind of sense of momentum. You know, it was the first day of a new legislature, uh, you know, of a new sitting. We're back from the kind of summer break. Um, And this one's especially important because we kind of know that this will probably be the last legislative season before we have an election. You know, that election might come early. I don't know if it will, but, you know, let's operate under the assumption that the election will come next fall, that this is kind of the last year of Trudeau's first mandate. So starting it off, you know, from Trudeau's perspective, he wants to kind of lay out a a guideline of saying, here's what we've done for you, and here's our kind of final lap. We're going to continue to do things for you. And, and, and it will, you know, roll with momentum to the election. And whereas, you know, the opposition parties, uh, you know, and this we're talking specifically about the conservatives here, they want to be able to kind of hammer in about Trudeau's failures, Trudeau's shortcomings, and how, uh, you know, over the next year they're going to demonstrate that we are the, the choice to replace him. And, you know, finding a new person to cross the floor from the government party in an area of the country that you need to win um, to to form government is is certainly a positive sign. Now, again, it's one person in a house of 338 MPs. Who knows what it matters? This doesn't flip, you know, majority to a minority. But but it's um, if you're Andrew Shear, it's certainly a good thing today, and you know it helps that because you know that you've lost Maxime Bernier. This does replace him in a sense. And hmm. you know, earlier in this mandate, the the Liberals did pick up a couple seats from the Tories in some by elections. So maybe this is a bit of mid mid election momentum for the conservatives that they could use. What will have the greatest impact on this session? What will be the key issues that we'll be talking about? You know, there'll be a few things. One, it's it's going you know trade is going to probably be a big one, specifically NAFTA, and then you know within that the broader relationship with the United States. Trudeau's going to have to try to convince Canadians 
that regardless of what happens, that he's standing up for them and he's kind of, uh, you know, standing up to Trump, who is who is not popular with Canadians, including, you know, conservatives, you know, especially non-conservatives. But the most Canadian conservatives are not a fan of Mr. Trump. So he'll have to do that. Um, and the opposition parties on trade will have to demonstrate how, one, if they would do something different, and then two, how they could kind of be more effective. So for the NDP, I think it's actually a quite a, an easy approach, um, relatively, because they can, I think, make a credible argument that Trudeau is a peace Trump. He's looked askance at his violations of basic human rights and freedoms, all under the guise that he was going to get us a good trade deal, and he's failed on that. So the NDP can go and say, look, we'll stand up to Trump. Because if he's not going to deal with us, we'll at least have our dignity. For the Tories, it's quite a bit trickier, I think, because a lot of the conservative approach has to be, you know, criticizing Trudeau for failing. But how do you do that without siding with Trump? And then you get into the kind of issues, the, the, the little, you know, uh, edge cases where do you start sounding like Maxime Bernier? And one of the reasons he was kicked out of caucus, or not kicked out of caucus, sorry, but kicked out of cabinet or the shadow cabinet was that he sided with Trump so nakedly on issues like supply management. And he took the side against Canada's farmers, and he took the side with the American president. And Andrew Scheer couldn't tolerate that. So how do you, for instance, balance that line of, you know, saying you're going to get a good deal, but then not look like you're basically a cheerleader for the Republican Party? That's going to be a very tricky position for the Conservatives. What about the Trans Mountain Pipeline? How much of that is going to play out here? That's that's an interesting that's an interesting one. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think right now we're in a bit of a holding pattern because I think right now it seems as if it's more in the jurisdiction of the courts. I think that you know you're going to see the government appeal that decision, or you're going to see them try to find uh, a path towards reconciliation. I, I, I think the latter is less likely because I think the government realizes that any meaningful consultation will either render the project unprofitable or will um, not be possible because Indigenous peoples, uh, at least a sufficient amount of them, have a different priority for the environment and a different priority for the future of our economic landscape. So I think the government will try to do it through the courts. If we get some definitive answer there, then the kind of conversation will shift. I think that's, um, that's where we're looking at that. I think, again, this is a kind of wedge issue that could be seized by, by the NDP. So the Conservatives, again, they're kind of in an awkward position here because they largely support the government's attempt to build the pipeline. Um, they could, for instance, attack Trudeau in saying that he failed to, it failed to get it done. But it's, it's going to be difficult, I think, because one of the reasons the, the kind of failure has happened thus far is that Trudeau largely consider, uh, you know, con- continued the consultative patterns and structures that existed under the Harper government. And that's kind of why we're in this mess, at least according to the, to the judge in question. What do you think Trudeau's biggest challenge is this session? Session. I think I think it's going to be I I think it's going to be um, on, on trade uh, from a kind of more general perspective, and I think one one big challenge is going to be able to convince the kind of broad center left coalition that elected him that he's that he's actually represented their interests, and I think on the former. It's going to depend again. Can he get a deal that 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 you know that most Canadians think is good? And even if he can't, can he at least make the case that it wasn't his fault and that it's you know it's the brash American president? And if he can do either of those two things, he could gain a lot of support 
uh, or at least maintain his current level of support. And on the other question, he has to be able to try to point to things like marijuana legalization and whatnot to try to say, look, I've done some of the progressive things I've promised I would do. But he, but he faces a risk there because electoral reform was a key broken promise, and it's been reinvigorated in central Canada when you look at Doug Ford you know, now having uh, absolute power with less than 40% of the vote or about 40% of the vote. But now there's a reinvigorated interest in electoral reform as a response to that kind of calamity at Queen's Park. And then we're also, you know, looking at the fact that Indigenous children continue to face educational inequalities that Trudeau said he would fix, and he has All right, Christo Avalese has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.